welcome to Conversations About Life. Well, thank you, Rabbi Zev, for being a guest on my podcast. It's Looking forward to talking with you. It's my, it's my pleasure, Will, and thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you. Well, to start off, uh, Rabbi Zev, please tell me some about yourself. Uh, um, my name is Rabbi Zev Smason, a uh, resident of St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, born in Chicago, uh, lived the first 13 years of my life or so in the Midwest, and then moved out to the left coast, I mean the west coast, to California, uh, where I attended uh, high school and uh, college, university. I'm a graduate of UCLA. And after graduation and majoring in political science, um, I had applied to and was accepted to law school and was planning on attending law school, but I decided that uh, I, there was something missing in my life. And, and I, I couldn't identify what it was that was missing, but I knew that I wanted to uh, be a little bit more secure in finding that which it was that was missing before I embarked upon um, the beginning of, 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 of law school and perhaps a law career. So following graduation from college, I did some traveling. So to make a long story short, I did some traveling around the world with a backpack and uh, uh traveling to Australia, New Zealand, through the United States, through Europe. I found myself in Turkey, and it was a $40 plane uh, ticket uh, from Istanbul to Tel Aviv. And being Jewish, but really not knowing much about being Jewish, having grown up in a non-observant home, hmm. uh, I was interested in visiting Israel. And it was the winter time, and that's where many of the European travelers, my fellow travelers, were were headed during the winter to to go to work on a kibbutz, a collective collective farms where they had volunteers uh, to ride out the winter and to experience that for what I thought would be a month or so. So I <clears throat> made my way to to a kibbutz where I picked bananas and worked with the chickens and worked in a plastics factory and didn't find it particularly. Uh, interesting or exciting, mainly because most of the work they wound up giving to me was washing dishes. Mm -hmm. I didn't sign up for that. Uh, but with about a week left remaining in Israel, uh, I was introduced to the opportunity to learn something more about my traditional heritage that I had never been exposed to, uh, mm -hmm. having grown up in, in a very Jewish values-oriented home, but not religious Mm -hmm. or not particularly spiritual. My parents were wonderful people, uh, wonderful. My father passed away ten year, uh, tw about 20 years ago, and my mother, she should be well, uh, uh, raised, raised uh, I as the oldest of four children with a strong sense of values, but no religious or spiritual identity, so to speak. So I had this opportunity at the end of my visit in Israel uh, to attend what's called a yeshiva, and uh, you or some of your listeners might not know, but essentially yeshiva is a religious seminary where it's an opportunity to be able to study traditional Judaism. And when I say traditional, I mean Orthodox or traditional Judaism uh, from the original texts. But this particular 
seminary or yeshiva was oriented for individuals such as myself who came from non-observant backgrounds. So it gave me the opportunity to be able to get my foot in the door, not really knowing that much or essentially uh, not knowing virtually anything about Judaism. And, and I remember feeling at the time that I had a college-level education and a degree, but I had less than a first-grade Jewish education. Hmm. So <clears throat> I stayed for a week, and I was absolutely fascinated. I, I was just fascinated by a side to to Judaism, not not the ritualistic aspect, but the, the, the spiritual aspect and, and the values that were inherent in traditional Judaism, uh, a 3,000-year-plus tradition that we have that we gave the world that I had never been exposed to. My parents had never been exposed to it. And I went returned back to Los Angeles after having already deferred law school for two years, much to my parents' consternation. And uh, after having given it a lot of thought and taking about six months to decide what my next step was, I felt that I owed it to myself to make up for lost time to find out what it meant to be Jewish, what it meant to be a Jew. So I, I decided to return to that yeshiva uh, and made a commitment to attend for a year uh, before whatever that next step might be. Because as I said, with uh, a college degree, but without any religious or spiritual foundation, I felt that that was the time. I felt that um, that that perhaps what is what was what I was looking for. And I was very excited about the prospects of, of learning uh, about traditional Judaism that I had never been exposed to when I was younger. So, um, so I stayed. I stayed and I became absolutely enthralled with the opportunity to be able to study traditional Judaism. Uh, I gradually became more observant. And although... Uh, for purposes of nomenclature, I'm referred to as an Orthodox rabbi, like they say in the baseball uh, stadiums. You can't tell your players without a scorecard, so you have to be able to identify uh, certain synagogues and rabbis by their denomination. Mm -hmm. um, but, but I believe that for the most part, and you might be able to relate to this as well, uh, as a Christian, as some of your listeners might be able to be able to relate to as well, labels are really great for clothing, but they're they're not so good for people and their religious or their spiritual beliefs. Hmm. So I don't look at myself as an Orthodox Jew as much as I look at myself as someone who's aspiring to be a better Jew. Uh, I observe Judaism, <clears throat> Judaism, traditional Orthodox Judaism to the best of my ability. Uh, and that was something that uh, was and remains my goal, to constantly strive to become a, a better person and a better Jew, and that being defined by learning more and doing more and aspiring to the values and the practices that the Judaism sets out for me. So, so back to my story. Um, after a year, I realized that, uh, that this was something that was not only personally meaningful, but something important. And having grown up uh, essentially on the, the beaches of Southern California with two feet very firmly having been planted in secular society, 
but now having an awareness of how many of my Jewish brothers and sisters had no idea uh, about the richness and the beauty of their heritage, uh, which described me to a T, that I thought that it would not only be, be worthwhile, but I felt, in a sense, a, 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 I had found my calling. Uh, I had found what I was here to do. And I think everybody is here for a particular reason at a particular time. And I couldn't think of anything better to dedicate the next years of my life to than, than learning more about Judaism and becoming a rabbi and sharing the beauty of our heritage, of our Jewish heritage with, with my fellow Jews. So one year turned into four, and then I met my wife in Israel, uh, who came and comes from a very similar background as myself, having grown up non-observant, but having become more observant later in life. Uh, we married, we remained in Israel for another four years, and I had an opportunity to become involved with adult education in St. Louis. That's how I wound up here. I was offered a job to uh, teach adult edu uh, education uh, through an organization that's an international organization known as Asia Torah, uh, which had a branch in St. Louis. So I worked for 10 years as, a, as, a, as an educator, teaching adult education to Jews of all, all, all backgrounds, mostly from non-observant backgrounds. And then at the end or near the end of that 10-year period of time, um, for various reasons, I wanted to uh, do something a little bit different. And I decided that being a congregational rabbi would afford me the opportunity to, to grow and to contribute in ways that I hadn't until that time, uh, specifically becoming involved more uh, intimately, if you will, with the lives of individuals over a long-term basis, participating in various uh, uh, life passage rituals rather than individuals who would simply come and go, um, uh, being involved with families. So I was blessed with the opportunity to uh, become associated with this synagogue, Nusachri B'nai Zion congregation, and I was the associate rabbi for a year, and then I was selected to be the senior rabbi. And I served uh, for a total of 25 years as the rabbi of, of this synagogue in, in Olivet. So <clears throat> I tell my mother that I'm the chief rabbi of Olivet. Of Olivet. <laughs> I also happen to be the only rabbi in Olivet, but uh, Olivet is a suburb of, uh, of, of University City of St. Louis, as you and, and I'm sure many of your listeners know. So, um, so after 25 years of service, uh, to the congregation as the senior rabbi, I decided that there were uh, other mountains that I wanted to climb, and uh, I'm currently involved in a venture uh, with an organization that's known as the Coalition for Jewish Values, CJV Coalition for Jewish Values, which is a national organization. About four years ago, I became involved, and I'm the Midwestern Regional Vice President. It's a national organization that uh, disseminates and uh, shares views on public policy, of issues of public policy from a traditional Jewish perspective, sharing authentic Jewish values. So while there are many individuals who are Jewish and they say, because I'm Jewish and I believe this, so therefore this is what it is that Judaism says, 
I believe, as do not only the 2,000 Orthodox, plus Orthodox rabbis that our organization represents, but hundreds of thousands of not only Jews, but, but Christians, Bible-believing Christians, uh, believe that although times change, values never change. Um, and uh, they're called the Ten Commandments, not the Ten Suggestions. So, um, so, so we represent nationally that voice of authentic Jewish values on matters of family, of life, and, and a lot of the hot topics that are taking place and issue statements on matters of public policy when people want to know, well, what does Judaism have to say about, about abortion? What does Judaism have to say about same-sex marriage? What does Judaism have to say about uh, transitioning children who are— uh, or adolescents to uh, to a different sex, uh, anti-Semitism and, and Israel and all of these hot-button issues that are political issues, but but really have at their base a spiritual core. So I became involved with that organization, and just recently we opened up a branch, the first branch of Coalition for Jewish Values in Missouri. So I serve as the chairman of the Coalition for Jewish Values in Missouri, as well as remaining actively involved in the national organization. So, right. so uh, and uh, a little bit about more about myself personally, I mentioned that, um, <clears throat> I might have mentioned that, uh, that I'm the oldest of four children. Um, uh, my, my family uh, remains in, uh, my mother and my three siblings remain in Southern California. And my wife, Hani, and I are blessed with nine children and multiple grandchildren. Wow. wow. Yeah, well, well, actually, I have nine children and she has ten. I'm the tenth. <laughs> <laughs> so I take a lot more work than I think any of them do. Uh, so we've been blessed with uh, multiple grandchildren as well. And uh, that, of course, is, uh, is the, the joy and uh, the light of our lives as well as uh, something that is very much in sync with our our religious and our spiritual beliefs of going all the way back to the very first commandment in the Bible, be fruitful and multiply. So so uh, if one is so blessed to be able to to have children, it's uh, it's a mitzvah, it's a commandment to do so, and uh, and we've been abundantly blessed in that way as well. So. Uh, so together with uh, those things that I just described that I do uh, is uh, my uh, profession, if you will, my professional career as a rabbi in rabbinic work and teaching, uh, I'm very blessed to have a very uh, very rich and meaningful and wonderful personal life. And my wife and I just celebrated our 39th anniversary. Congratulations. Uh, so I've had 39 happy years. I think I hope she's had 39 happy years also, but we just had celebrated our 39th anniversary and uh, and we're uh, moving forward as we move into this next phase and these next phases of our lives as everyone does in any given junction in their life. So as a young man, you mentioned there was this yearning, you were feeling like you were missing something. Mm-hmm. So do you feel like that you found it do you feel satisfied then um like was were you somehow made complete and was that through judaism um so so there's a couple of parts as i understand it will to your question did in, in asking me a if i found it and b if i if i feel complete um i would say that um to answer your first question 
I feel that I found a direction in which to be able to find the guidelines and the direction and the tools to be able to gain that inner peace and that satisfaction, that spiritual satisfaction that involves ultimately a relationship with God, um, being able to love God, to revere Him, and to have a relationship and a closeness with Him um, under the, the rubric of religion. And there's a difference between religion and spirituality. Um, you can find some individuals who are very religious but not particularly spiritual, and people can be spiritual and not necessarily re religious. But I saw Judaism as an opportunity to be able to satisfy what, what was really a spiritual yearning through the timeless traditions and guidelines of Judaism that we presented to the world, some of which are particular to ourselves as the Jewish people, some of which are universal. So um, I would say then, just to summarize my answer to the first part of your question, I found the user's manual, if you will. Mm -hmm. So much like in the same way that if uh, you get a car, I think they still have user's manuals, although they're probably online. If you want to learn how to fly a plane, uh, you have, definitely have to have a user's manual to be able to know how to be able to fly a plane. Well, being able to navigate life is considerably more complex and difficult than, than flying a plane. And, mm -hmm. and there's just so many situations that come up, both in terms of uh, a potential relationship with the Almighty, uh, relationships with others um, can be very, very challenging in so many different ways. It, it reminds me of the, the fellow who once said, I love humanity, it's people I can't stand. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so so it's, uh, it, can, it can be difficult. There are multiple challenges in getting along with other people, and Judaism provides the guidelines and the directions on how to do so. I think best exemplified by something that, that you and many of your listeners might identify is what Judaism uh, states is a fundamental principle of Judaism, love your friend as yourself. The Hebrew phrase is, I am the Lord your God. It's a passage in the book of Leviticus. So one of our great rabbis, Rabbi Akiva, said uh, that that's the essence and the foundation of Judaism, and the rest is commentary. Go learn it. Now, hmm. Many people aren't as, as familiar with the last part of what it was that he said, go learn it. But, but if in the attempts of our tradition to boil Judaism down to, to one statement, if you could do such a thing, it would be love your friend as yourself. I am the Lord your God. So um, – and, and, then, and then the third aspect of the, of the, the direction was – not only between myself and God and my relationship with others, but my relationship with myself, um, my inner world. And I found that Judaism contained the guidelines and the directions for that as well. Um, and, and just one final thought that I'll share, the word Torah, which we use to refer to uh, all, of all of Jewish literature, both the written Torah, the oral Torah, but for purposes of simplicity, the Jewish Bible, the word Torah, many people are unaware of, does not mean law or the law, but it means instructions. Mm -hmm. Instructions for what? Instructions for living. So I, I, found, I found the user's manual. Mm -hmm. I, I believed, and it was up to me to be able to apply myself to it. Um, in terms of your second question completed, 
Uh, I never felt completed. I, I don't feel completed. Um, I, I feel that I'm a work in progress. <laughs> And I, and I have so so far to go, so far to go in so many different areas, um, because the, the the bar the bar is set as high as my potential is. So although no one knows what their potential is, but I know I haven't maximized my potential in terms of patience, in terms of humility, in terms of kindness, in terms of um, charity, and uh, in terms of my knowledge of the various things that I need to know, perfecting, working on perfecting my relationships with others. So as, as someone once said in a different sphere, I think in the sphere of sports, um, although people say uh, practice makes perfect, that that's not really true because you can never be perfect, but perfect practice helps you to become almost perfect. So by practicing well, uh, you, you get better. You, and you can be really good at something if you, if you practice it often and thoughtfully and intelligently. So uh, I am nowhere near completed. Uh, and uh, I, and, I, and I, I believe and I know that God believes that I'm a work in progress. Yeah. So one thing that came up in my thoughts here as I was listening to you is something related to what I was doing this morning. And this is kind of like, I'm going to share with you a Christian perspective and just see how, you know, from a Jewish perspective, like what that, what might be similar for you or different and so forth. But on the way over here, I was kind of thinking about Psalm 23rd and I enjoy, I've enjoyed the Psalms lately and just kind of meditating on them and like Psalm 23rd starts off the the Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want and it's just a reminder that God is um, that he sees me that he loves me and that's uh, you know just really resonates with me it just it's like that's really the what we want, you know, to be seen, to be loved, and especially by, by God, and, and then, but f- there's a, f- for a Christian, for me, there's a, like the foundation of that of, of Jesus, and um, and his death and his sacrifice, which makes me acceptable to God, so. Um, it's like I think apart from that, I would be kind of uh, judging my um, my um, right own righteousness. Like, how well am I doing? Um, do I deserve His love? Because maybe not everybody is um, can be can say, "Well, the Lord is my shepherd; I shall not want," you know, and so forth. But so I don't really. It's not like I'm always consciously thinking about Jesus as my sacrifice and my standing before God that I can be accepted. But I think subconsciously it's always there. Um, so when I read like Psalm 23 or, or I'm just thinking about it, um, there's no um, kind of like hesitation. I just feel, yes, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down um, on green pastures and so forth. So for a Jewish person, what is... What do they base 
what do you base your standing on so that you feel God's love and just feel accepted and um, and then a passage of scripture like Psalm twenty third can just really resonate with you, and so forth. Okay, okay. Thank you for thank you for the thoughtful question. Um, there's a, there's a passage in the Bible that that says that says Banim. I'll share it with you in Hebrew and then translate it. Banim atem You are the children of the Lord your God. And considerably earlier than that passage that appears, I believe, in the book of Deuteronomy is the account that's very well known to anyone who has a basic familiarity with scriptures in the book of Genesis, in which when God created Adam and Eve as the pinnacle of creation, um, the Torah, the Bible there says that human beings were unique among all created entities, um, both sentient, animate, and inanimate, in that we were created with what the Torah uses, to use the Hebrew and then translate, a tselem elokim, an image of God. Hmm. So, so every, every human being, be they Jewish or not, are created, or have been created and are created in, in the image of God, which, which I understand and traditional Judaism understands to mean that, that although God is king— and there's a very uh, significant Jewish prayer that refers to God as king, and there are numerous numerous references to him as king. But even more than he is our king, he is our father. So the title of that particular prayer, Avinu Malkinu, our father, our king. And when we reach out to God, we refer to him as our father father and our king. So the difference between a king and a father is that a king has a lot of pull and a lot of connections and unlimited resources, but a king doesn't necessarily uh, care uh, about the, 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 the good and welfare of his subjects. A father and a mother, and uh, I'm being gender, being gender specific over here, but I'm referring to a parent in general, uh, loves unconditionally their children, but doesn't necessarily always have the resources to be able to do what it is that they might like to do that they feel is best for their children. So God is both. He's our father and our king. But first he's our father and then he's our king. So the very fact that God created me and he created you and he created all of those who are listening to us today and all humanity means that means that God loves me. And God loves you, and that, and then much like in the same way that I have been blessed, as I mentioned, to be a, a parent. And I'm not sure. Are you a parent? I am. Okay. So, so for you being blessed to be a parent, and anyone who's listening, so so we know that um, that that we love our children unconditionally. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't discipline them appropriately when necessary, because proper discipline is part of love. So, to answer your question. Uh, by what right, if you will, to paraphrase, and I hope I'm expressing your question uh, accurately, by what right or upon what basis do I feel that that God is my shepherd and that I might be included in the words of that Psalm of David, the 23rd Psalm, by the very fact that I am a child of God, that God loves me. Um, God doesn't make junk, 
and and every he loves every human being, every human being with 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 a love that that I can't that we can't begin to imagine. We have a little bit of a taste of the love that God has for us by the love that we have for our children, that I have for my children, uh, and all of us, at least most of us, hopefully, the love that we can uh, remember or relate to our parents having for us. So multiply that by a, a gazillion, and and that's the basis upon which I have a relationship with God because God is uh, my father, he's my father, mother, he's my king, and he loves me simply because he created me, and he created me in, in, in his image. So in Judaism, um, what's the viewpoint of God's judgment? For example, in Christianity, there's, well, there's hell, which is a translation of the word Gehenna. So I I, I think it, I think of it as being like cast out, being cast away from God, um, out of His kingdom, out of His blessing, and so forth. So, is there that concept that in Judaism that some will be, you know, judged in that way and just cast away from God? Um, <clears throat> there, there is that concept, but. Those individuals that are cast away from God are, we are told in Judaism, very few and far between, because only those individuals who through their own actions so corrupted and defiled and irretrievably ruined their souls, they in effect prevented themselves from having a relationship with God, individuals who are evil. Now, for what I believe to be most of humanity, um, everybody makes mistakes. Um, I think that great philosopher Ted Turner was once quoted as saying, I made a mistake once, I thought I was wrong once, but I wasn't. So even Ted Turner admits that he, he made a mistake. Mm -hmm. So for the rest of us who do not fit into the category of being, being evil and cast away, there is a concept in Judaism that, that sometimes might be translated as hell, Gehenna, as you said, that's understood to be a purification process. Not, not a place where an individual is cast away. So during the course of one's lifetime, Judaism teaches, we have the opportunity through the process that in Hebrew is known as teshuva, sometimes translated as repentance, but really better translated as return, to return to God. And we can correct those mistakes and those blemishes that we've uh, created on our soul. Uh, if it involves another person, that absolutely involves addressing and redressing any harm that we've done to another person, including uh, seeking their apology and their forgiveness. Uh, but then I can rectify my mistake uh, uh, and the mistakes that I make over the course of my lifetime. For an individual, though, who leaves this world at whatever point they leave this world, if they're blessed with an average lifespan of 70 years, less or more, when a person then presents himself or herself before God, um, God says in looking at a person's 
balance sheet, if you will, playing that big VCR in the sky. I, I'm a little behind on the technology, but whatever the technology is that they're going to be using up there back then. And they play the version of this was your life. So then those mistakes that we left uncorrected, God says, you didn't correct this mistake. I'm now going to correct it for you. And that's what we understand the experience of Gehenna to be. So it, it involves two types of mistakes. There are mistakes that people make of commission, where we blow it, where we do things that are wrong. But, but, but more, more significantly are the mistakes of omission, the things that we should have done that we didn't do. And, and those are m much harder ultimately to deal with that, 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 that act of kindness that I should have done um, uh, or in whatever category there may have been something that was the potential that I had that I fell short of. So through the, through the process of purification, uh, that experience of Gehenim then purifies the stains that an individual uh, uh, imprinted on their soul there's a beautiful prayer that we say each morning that says, God, the soul that you gave me is pure. You created it. You formed it. You breathed it into me. And at the end of my life, you'll take it from me. So minimally, God brings us into this world with a pure soul uh, and says, if you mess up, fix it. And if you don't fix it by the time that you come back to me, so I'm going to fix it for you before uh, ultimately you'll be able to have a permanent relationship with me. So there would be a purifying process, and then after this life, there's a relationship with God. Somehow, like, is it a new recreating of heaven and earth, kind of how Christians think? Or is it more of a, just a spiritual, non-embodied type of connection with God then? There's two, there's two parts to it. We, we believe that the initial stage is what's known as the, to use a Hebrew phrase, the olam hanashamos, the world of souls, um, which is where everybody who is passed on from the beginning of time resides, except for those individuals who, who suffered the ultimate punishment, which was spiritual obliteration. Uh, those are the evil people. And those individuals are awaiting what we believe in as a principal tenant of Judaism as reincarnation. Um, so one of the 13 principles of Judaism that's meant, that we mention in our prayers three times a day is, I said reincarnation, I, I misspoke, resurrection. Okay. Resurrection. Um, resurrection where ultimately um, all of those souls will be reunited with their bodies. So, so that will then take place after after a period of time. So, so the the world to come. If someone were to ask me, what does Judaism believe about the world to come? Thank you for asking the question. So, so I would say that it involves a two step process. One is the world of souls, where an individual is judged initially based upon uh, any uncorrected mistakes that they might have had during uh, the period of their lifetime then they have a relationship with the Almighty at that point. And ultimately, there will come a time where there will be a resurrection of the dead for those who are deserving, Jewish as well as non-Jewish, and they'll be reunited with their bodies, which was the way that we were created initially, to live forever in, in, in the Garden of Eden 
Uh, it's just that uh, uh, death was then decreed. But we're, we're all looking to get back to the garden. And uh, getting back to the garden means that at the end of a certain period of time, uh, those individuals who were deserving and worthy of it um, will be reunited with their bodies through the process of, resur of resurrection. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Um, so I guess I just have like these little topics, you know, just a, a few of them that um, I'd like to ask you about. Um, so one is, um, let's see, what is really, what about, um, I guess, scripture um, from the uh, Jewish perspective, you know, um, what is it as in, um, is it um, like Christians uh, think of, you know, those books that make up scripture as like uh, authoritative and um, special and um, a canon, so to speak? Um, is there, is that pretty much how Judaism looks at the um, Torah. I've heard the word Tanakh used before. Um, how do you use it? Yeah, we do. Yeah, Tanakh okay. is an a acronym, okay. and it, and it stands for the three parts of the written Bible. So, okay. so uh, with my Christian friends, I refer to Tanakh as the Jewish Bible. Okay, and uh, it consists of three parts. There's the T sound. Uh, which stands for the Torah, which are the five books of Moses, mm -hmm. which would be Genesis, Exodus, Levit Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Uh, the N of Tanakh it means Navim or the prophets. So that would be the book of the pro the books of the prophets. So beginning with the book of Joshua, and then the book of Judges, the book of Samuel, the book of Kings, and then Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and the so-called minor prophets. So that would be the second part of the Jewish Bible or Tanakh. And the Chaf sound uh, stands for the Ketuvim or the writings, and that would include the latter part of the Jewish Bible. That would include such uh, books as the Psalms, um, the book of Esther, the book of Ruth, the book of Job, uh, Chronicles, Proverbs, um, the Book of Daniel, etc. So, so th those twenty-four books constitute what we call in Hebrew the Tanakh, or as I refer to it to my non-Jewish friends as the Jewish Bible. Right, and you believe that it was inspired by God. That these are like very human works, but. God working through the humans to um, give us a word from him. Is that kind of how you understand it? I would it? say it a little bit differently, Will. I would say that the first five books of the Bible, of the Torah, uh, Moses was taking dictation. So um, every word that's in the five books of Moses um, was not filtered through anything other than uh, the Word of God directly. Moses, as I said, was a, he was the court stenographer who was taking dictation. The remainder of the Bible, the remaining 19 books, if you will, um, 
uh, are divinely inspired but colored through the personality of the prophet who uh, was given the blessing of being able to record it. So, uh, so all of it is the Word of God, uh, with the distinction being the first five books of the Torah are literally the Word of God as he gave it to Moses. Uh, the remainder remains authoritative as not simply divinely inspired, but divinely given, but but given with with metaphors, with parables, and through the the personality as I as I as I expressed of the particular prophet who was tasked with writing them. So, for example, the Book of Kings was written um, by Jeremiah. Um, so, so it came through came through Jeremiah's prophecy. That, so they're all prophetic writings. Okay. So I appreciate you know how you responded to um, the Jewish perspective as contrasted with the Christian perspective. So I have a, another question along those lines. So when I think of the Jewish Bible, you know I think of like just a, a circle, like a, a being humanity being set up and then a fall, you know, and then being set, like, first of all, you got the Garden of Eden, and that's kind of a, like the archetypical uh, one, and then everything just kind of follows, you know, al- along with that. You got, um, you know, the tabernacle set up, and then uh, Aaron's sons do something strange, and there's like a fall, and then you have... You know, over and over again, you have those kind of scenarios. And the way that I think of it is, and then eventually God steps in himself. And that's how we think of Jesus, like God entering in and then taking care of things um, with this, the sacrifice of Jesus. And, and in that, we we then have um, the holy God and sinful man reconciled, and then God's Spirit dwells with us. And out of that new heart, um, we live. We're like uh, the f- slavery to sin is broken, and we live a more uh, we live a more free life of living righteously and so forth. Mm-hmm. So from a I I get the impression from a, a Jewish perspective there's um a way. So like um so we see like what about this, you know, there's these cycles um being set up and then fall and then another one and another one and and God breaks us out of that. But I think from a Jewish perspective there's the instruction so there's like there's a way for us to work our way out but it's kind of like just knowing and the re- returning to God the and we um and through following the instruction which you know I think a psalm 1 instruction being something to delight in you know meditate on day and night um through that that's kind, that's the way out of this cycle after cycle of, you know, like fall, you know, I think of like foreign enemy, foreign enemies coming in and taking Israel and just, 
over and over again that the way out of out of all of that is through the instruction. Is that kind of am I understanding uh, it right? I, I, I would. I would agree essentially with what it is that you said, but I'd, I'd add a component or two, if I may. Okay. Um, and, and one of the, a very important component is that we can't follow these instructions on our own without God's help. So we rely upon and we pray daily and hopefully sincerely that God helps us to be able to accomplish um, all of these. Uh, obligations that we have and all of these desires of our heart because without God we wouldn't be capable of being able uh, to to reach our potential and to withstand the various the various temptations um, and although the essence of Jewish prayer is not about requests it's it's not as if we view God as you know he's, he's in a cloud somewhere with a giant bag of cookies and we're asking him for various types of cookies you know give me this and give me that the essence of jewish prayer is, is an expression of gratitude as you see from the psalms that david wrote the 150 psalms the main focus is is on seeking closeness to god you mentioned psalm 23 and in psalm 27 um david says uh, there's one thing that I ask. There's one thing that I ask from God, and it is that that I seek. So you know, yes, after you know, if you if you if you could have uh, the genie in the bottle that would pop out and grant one wish, what would you wish for? Well, well, David, the great King David, said, "I'll share with you the Hebrew and then translate it: Shifti Hashem to dwell in the house of the Lord forever." Now, he didn't spend all of his time by any means inside the study hall or the temple. He was David the king and David the, the peacemaker and David the warrior, but, but he created within himself the inner world where God became a repository within him. And if you look in the book of Exodus, you'll see that when the commandment was given to build the sanctuary, the, uh, the Torah there says, uh, make for me a sanctuary— Asuli Mikdash, and then the concluding phrase in Hebrew is Veshachanti Besocham, which literally translated means, and I will dwell in their midst. So hmm. the question is asked well, if God's presence was to dwell in this edifice, whatever that means, and whatever function that served, the, the proper grammar would have been build for me a sanctuary and I will dwell in its midst. So why does it say build for me a sanctuary and I will dwell in their midst? <clears throat> and the answer is is because we understand that there was a commandment not only that the tabernacle and then later the temple was to be built to be a place where the divine presence could be more palpably felt, but God's presence should be present in in the heart and in the soul of every human being and in every home. So we're, th those are instructions essentially to make our homes and to make ourselves into a sanctuary for God. And, and we can't do that without his help. But the good news is, is that we say that based upon traditional teachings that God tells us, open for me a hole the size of a needle and then I will open for you an opening the size of a palace. Hmm. So, so God helps those who help 
themselves is a very Jewish idea, but but the help that we have to give has to be a very small effort, but it has to be with a needle, meaning, meaning you have to try hard. And what does God want from us? He wants us to do our very best, not any less and not any more. So, so I, I hope I'm answering your question and explaining that that it's certainly true that that we achieve closeness to God by seeking to fulfill our obligations and duties and that which we are commanded to do to the best of our ability, each of us, Jew and non-Jew, but always cognizant uh, that we need God's help to do so and that the ultimate goal is to make ourselves as that repository to be able to constantly dwell in God's presence, which, which David himself expressed in Psalm 27. And then, as far as God's Spirit dwelling in you, and that's what you're referring to, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm, okay. Mm-hmm. So, you see God as spiritual in in the sense where He can dwell in this person and that person, and at all at the same time, and so forth. Mm-hmm. How do you um, experience that, or how do you know that God is with you? Uh, what's the identification markers of that? Well, we sell them here. We have Geiger counters. You oh, yeah. just, put, just put it up to another person and you can tell what... No. How can you tell? That's a great question. Um, I, I think that we all have a, a sense of, of a person who is walking with and living with God and has God in their heart. Um, one of the 613 commandments... And there are 613 commandments, not 10. Um, mm-hmm. That's something that many of your uh, listeners may may not know. There are the, the 10 uh, tips of the icebergs, if you will, that are called the Ten Commandments that subsume uh, the other 603 commandments that are not expressed directly within the Ten Commandments. So they're really 10 categories, 10 statements, and the literal translation uh, is not the Ten Commandments, but the Ten Sayings or Statements. Um, this is one case where we can truly say that the book is better than the movie because there were the Ten Statements, not the Ten, uh, the ten Commandments. Um, but um, the, uh, the, the, way that, the way that we're able to do this, and, and I think that where I was going with this is, is that there's a specific commandment among those 613 that says, and I'll share it with you in Hebrew and then translate, the halachta bidrachav, which means walk in his ways. One of the 613 commandments is walk in his ways. So if you ask the average person with a passing familiarity with Judaism, even a Jewish person, even many Jewish people, and you would say, so, so tell, me, tell me some of the commandments that you're familiar with. And in my experience as a rabbi, uh, the go-to default examples that would be given would be the more ritualistic aspects of Judaism, the dietary laws, uh, the observance of the Sabbath, um, and not that they need my approbation, and I'm all in favor of those as an observant Jew, but, but there are a number of commandments that are tools, such as the dietary laws and the keeping of the Sabbath, and then there are the objectives, and the great objectives are commandments as well, 
um, which are categorized as six of the 613 commandments. And they are to love God. It's a commandment. And, and that's something that, that I think that many of my fellow Jews aren't aware of, that there is a command, commandment to love God. Now, now how you could be commanded to f- experience an emotion is an interesting question. But we're commanded to love God. We're commanded to revere him. Sometimes translated as fear, but I believe better translated is to revere God. Uh, we're commanded to believe that he is one. We're commanded to know that there's a God not simply to believe in God and not even to have faith in God, but to know that there's a God. And how you can know that there's a God is an interesting question. Uh, we're prohibited to worship idols, and we're not, and we're prohibited from following after our eyes and our heart. So those are what are referred to as the six constant commandments that an individual can fulfill at any time and any place. Uh, be it a man, be a woman, whether you be uh, in in Kirkwood, Olivet, Israel, wherever you might be, um, and and I think a, a a first cousin to that category of mitzvahs that I've just shared with you is that commandment of walking in God's ways. So to emulate God to the degree that such a thing could be said about a human being being able, able to emulate God. But those are those are well the objectives. Those are the goals and and the things that we do the. The, the, the religious dress, the, the, the rituals that each respective religion might have, including Judaism, again, I'm at risk of repeating myself, I would say that those are tools and, and not ends in of themselves, but tools to help us to achieve the ultimate goal of, of coming to know God and coming to be able to have God within one's heart. So coming full circle, so how do you know? So you know when you see a person. You know when you see a person. Uh, and, and just an example, you could, you, you could tell whether God is in a person's heart by the way that they treat a person with a, with a mop in a store or a person who's working a cash register. You can tell who a person is, and we can tell who we are uh, and to the degree that we have God in our heart, how we act when no one's looking. Um, we can tell whether God is in someone's heart by the way that they treat their relatives behind closed doors when they're not looking to make an impression on, on a customer or on a client or on a patient. Um, we can see whether God is in our heart by whether we spontaneously act with compassion, kindness, and generosity when not asked to do so and how naturally that comes forth, whether we look at it as a burden or whether we rejoice in the opportunity to be able to to serve God and to bring his presence into the world. So uh, I've answered in a a very nonlinear, non-tangible way, but I think that we, we all know, we all know anyone who's blessed to have any type of relationship with God can tell whether a person is the real deal or not. And, uh, but ultimately, it's not about judging other people. It's about, it's about assessing ourselves and how am I doing and, and hopefully growing each day and taking a, a step closer each day to reaching that potential. When it comes to the... Um, sacrifice that's in the Jewish Bible um, and I guess dealing with guilt 
I, I get the impression that when it comes to dealing with guilt, it's more of, well, you you make um, recompense if you need to, but you just kind of change your ways, and God forgives. Um, but what what about the temple and sacrifice? Is that something that was just for them and that's not needed any longer in the Jewish perspective? Or how do you see, I guess that all kind of goes together, guilt, sacrifice, mm-hmm. temple, and everything. Well, guilt is a very Jewish thing. You know, they, they say that the uh, a Jewish telegram is worry now, details to follow. So, so, so we're pretty good on guilt. Yeah. We're pretty good on guilt. And, 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 and guilt has somewhat of a negative connotation, but I think a word that's close to it that uh, perhaps is more appropriate for a person of faith is regret. And that regret, and maybe even guilt, but again, I would prefer the word regret, is good. It's, and it's healthy. Because if when an individual does something, and I'll get to your question about the temple and the sacrifices, but, but if a person feels guilt slash regret and then acts upon it, so then they have the opportunity to be able to change their ways for the good. If a person doesn't have guilt, if a person doesn't feel regret, if a person hurts another person's feelings, for example, a person stands a person up or a person says some hurtful words and feels no guilt and no regret, so the prospects of of not only change but but are unlikely, but spiritual deterioration is almost inevitable. Because how are you going to change if you don't have something that gnaws at you that says, hey, I I told a lie. I said something that that, that wasn't true, or I didn't live up to to the standards that I know that God has for me. And, And that gnawing feeling of regret can and should be a very positive catalyst to change. So all depending on how it's used, guilt guilt and regret is a very healthy emotion that God created us with the capacity to feel and to use. So if it's used in the proper way, so then it's a wonderful blessing because people who feel no guilt and there are prisons that are filled with people who have done terrible things primarily because of repetitive actions where they've subsumed or ignored that initial feeling of regret that they had. And then uh, what they did, uh, not only did they not feel any regret, but they came to enjoy the taste of the the terrible things that they might have done. So watch out for a person who doesn't feel regret for something wrong that they've done. Mm -hmm. Um, As to the sacrifices into the temple, um, the sacrifices in the temple are something that we miss because they were tools that facilitated returning to God. Um, But ultimately, the goal of every sacrifice, and I believe uh, it's stated explicitly in the words of the prophet um, Micah, if I'm correct, where God says, um, in so many words, and I'm paraphrasing it, um, I don't desire the bullocks, uh, your bullocks and your calves, but I desire contrition of the heart. So, so when an individual had to pay big bucks for an animal that they brought to the temple, 
Um, you know, a, a sheep, $200, a, a, a calf, $400. You did something that was wrong. You created a separation between yourself and God. So together with prayer and contrition, which was an indispensable part of the sacrificial pro- process, that would help to restore the relationship that an individual had with God. So if a person said, well, you know what, you know, I, I did this is wrong, and this, this is what the rules say, and I have to bring a sacrifice, so here you go, now leave me alone. In other words, I'm, I'm, pay, I'm paying God off. It didn't work. It didn't work, and you were and you were left not only unchanged, but even worse than you were before, because you because you used your checkbook to 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 bribe or to think that you could bribe God. Um, we don't have those tools. We don't have the tool of the temple that had the presence of God, whatever that means and whatever it was that they felt. Uh, but when an individual saw an animal that was about to be sacrificed and actually sacrificed, and they would place their hands upon the animal, and they would see the blood, and they would say, you know, I, I failed God miserably. I disappointed him. This really should be me, that, that that's something that optimally for a thoughtful person would prompt a person to have contrition and to resolve not to make the same mistake again. That was the function. So we're walking on crutches today. Hmm. Uh, that's the way that we look at it by not having the temple. But but the good news is is that the goal of the temple was not the sacrifices, and, and it wasn't the blood. It was the contrition of heart and the words of regret. And that's something that we make the best of like a person who unfortunately might not have all of their fingers or all of their limbs but you do the best that you can and and ultimately god says you can return to me and uh and with a thoughtful thoughtful approach to it um, we do we do the best that we can so what's the jewish concept of the messiah so 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 the jewish messiah um let me let me first speak about the messianic era and what's to take place in the messianic era and how we'll know that the messianic era has come about. Um, Jewish tradition tells us, and it's uh, spoken about primarily in the book of Isaiah, and there are a number of biblical references together with our oral tradition, but there are essentially four ways that we will know that the Messiah has come and that there is the dawning of the messianic era and that it, in fact, has arrived. Number one, there will be peace in the world. There will be peace in the world. And um, last time I looked in the newspaper, there wasn't a whole lot of peace. <laughs> so we're very, very far from that. But there will be peace in the world. Um, the lion will lay down with the lamb and other such passages in Isaiah and other prophets that speak about the time when there will be peace in the world. Um, and that's actually, as I'm sure you will know and many of your listeners know, is uh, an inscription on the cornerstone of the United Nations that says, taken from the book of Isaiah, they will be beat their swords into plowshares and their swords into pruning hooks, and no nation will lift up sword against nation. That's a description of the Messianic era. So we will know that the Messianic era has dawned when there is world peace. Uh, the second uh, identifying factor of the Messianic era is that all of the Jewish people will return to Israel. We will go home. That's our homeland. 
um, were visitors here. Um, so um, uh, in America, very welcome visitors and uh, were very appreciative of the liberties and the opportunities that America has afforded us, particularly in a historical co context uh, where we were, for example, expelled from England three different times and the various pogroms and persecutions and, and, and the threat and the danger that, that even the state of Israel lives under today as well. But nonetheless, uh, the Messianic era will also be indicated that it has dawned when all of the Jewish people return to Israel, to the homeland. And, and in the lifetime of some of your older listeners, um, they saw and experienced the miracle of the birth of the modern state of Israel. So after dispersion for 2,000 years, who had ever heard of a people without a common language, uh, without uh, a homeland, uh, uh, with, with various cultures uh, being uh, persecuted and attacked in so many ways that you're familiar with, being able to return to their land? So the very birth of the modern state of Israel we see is the is the beginning of the redemption, the beginning of the redemption process. So we believe that the beginning of the Messianic era is very near, uh, and I think Israel just celebrated its 74th anniversary. This year is going to be its 75th anniversary. So within the lifetime, again, of some who are listening, and 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 as many have said over over history, many kings who have said, "Prove to me that there's a God." That the answer that was given by a number of their um, uh, court officials was the Jews, Your Honor, the Jews. The very existence of the Jewish people defies all laws of nature, and and the fact that the state of Israel exists today is something that that to anyone who opens up their eyes is clearly the hand of God. So so we're not there yet, though. And, and we will all return. Uh, the third is the rebuilding of the temple. The temple will be rebuilt. And the fourth, and I'm saying this tongue-in-cheek, and the fourth way that we'll know that the Messianic era has come is that the Cubs will win the World Series. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that's... Uh, they just had a bad century. They did win once, but uh, you know, I, I say that as a as a diehard Dodger fan. But my second favorite team are the St. Louis Cardinals, so I could say that and poke fun at my friends who are Cubs fans. But so so that's the Messianic era. So the Messiah then will be the individual who facilitates the bringing about with God's help of those. Uh, aspects of the Messianic era. There are potential Messianic candidates, um, but how do we know for sure that we, we give him a badge that says Messiah, that he gets to wear the badge when, when, when these come about? And there were individuals who Jewish tradition says were, were potential Messiahs and that they were very great people, but for various reasons, primarily that the Jewish people themselves at the time didn't deserve it, although there were certain great individuals, but the Jewish people were not deserving of the dawning of the Messianic era. It, it, didn't, it didn't come about. So, uh, so the Messiah will be an individual who will be uh, a great scholar. He'll be, have prophecy on the level of Moses, a person of exemplary character traits. Uh, he'll be a king. He's referred to as King Messiah. And, uh, and he will be the individual who with uh, the hand of God will bring about 
the mess- messianic era that I just described. So that's the traditional Jewish view of uh, the Messiah and the messianic era. So there was one portion of scripture I was wanting to ask you about because from a Christian perspective, it seems to um, be so vividly referring to what happened with Jesus in the crucifixion. And that's in Isaiah, I think it's 45. I'm not sure the suffering servant passage. Chapter 53. 53, okay. Mm-hmm. And let me just kind of look it up. So I think I may have heard that um, Jewish people see that as referring to Hezekiah or or someone. Well, we see we see the we see the promise of the birth of a child referring to the birth of Hezekiah, but um, the, the short answer to your question, Will, is that we see that passage that Isaiah describes in fifty three as the suffering servant referring to Israel itself. Israel itself. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. The 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 suffering of Israel. Uh, it would be an interesting uh, study opportunity for for you and I, or for others, to go through to be able to go through it passage by passage, verse by verse, and to be able to see. But in speaking about as uh, a number of earlier sources in Isaiah indicates, he does refer to Israel as a people, as my servant. He does. I'm, he I'm does. familiar with that. Yeah. 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 So. Um, so, so the, the short answer to your question is that we see Israel as the suffering servant, and that passage describes the suffering that the Jewish people would undergo. And uh, at that period of time, before the first temple was destroyed, uh, and then the expulsion and uh, through the Babylonians, and then in the Persian exile, and even when the second temple was built, the suffering under the the Greek. Uh, under the Greeks, and then the destruction of the Second Temple, and then the Roman exile, in which we continue to exist, and again, the pogroms and the persecutions and the Holocaust, um, there's no one who, there's no sane person uh, who would argue that the Jewish people haven't haven't suffered terribly. So um, that's our understanding of that passage. All right, thank you. I think that... We probably can wrap up. It's been a really good conversation. Is there anything else on your mind that you'd like mm-hmm. to uh, bring up, um, or anything in particularly directed toward Christians that you know you you want Christians mm-hmm. to know? Um, mm-hmm. I mean, you've all mm-hmm. you've given so much content already, but just anything. Yeah, I think one, one thing that I'd like to share with you, Will, and I'd like to share with uh, those who are listening is that um, we, we all know that there were periods of, 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 to understate things, a great animosity between Jews and Christians, uh, primarily precipitated by uh, the church, uh, but uh, under Martin Luther as well, and in the Middle Ages, and, and the blood libels and the, the long, long history of, of, of the suffering and the persecution of, of Jews at the, hands of, at the hands of Christians and at the hand of others, but we're speaking about Christians. But we're living in a different time right now. Um, and we're living in a time where we, the Jewish people, have a very different relationship with Christians and with the Christian world in general. And I very strongly believe that 
that I as a Jew and that you as a Christian have so much more in common than the things about which we differ. Uh, and I would say, in describing myself as an aspiring, serious Jew, I like to think of myself as a serious Jew, and certainly you as a serious Christian and any of your listeners who are serious Christians, um, I would say that that we have so much in common and, and really, although there certainly are significant theological differences between us in certain areas, that, that it, it so strongly behooves us, especially in this time in which we live, to focus on what it is that we have in common rather than on the differences between us, which I think is, is indicated by your having reached out to me and having given me the opportunity to be able to chat with you and to chat with your listeners. And, 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 and in general, if we look at what it is that we have in common with people, that, that we see that, that every person is created in the image of God. And when it comes to Christians as well, Christians, serious Christians, have taken so many of the biblical values and have incorporated those values into not only their personal lives, but their communities' lives. I shared with the other the other day, for example, with someone, uh, you know, speaking about Christianity, and I said, when you think about the names, for example, in St. Louis, of the hospitals in St. Louis, what are the names of the hospitals? Well, you have St. Luke's, and you have you know Mercy. It used to be St. John's, and you have St. Mary's, and you had St. Anthony's, and you have Missouri Baptist. Why is it that you don't find many hospitals called Joe's Hospital? Mm-hmm. You know, and there's Christian Hospital. You know, why, why isn't there why isn't there Charlie's Hospital, or even General Hospital? And the reason is is because Christianity took the Jewish values of compassion, care, and uh, concern uh, for the widow, for the orphan, for the underprivileged, and, and that mandate to act with kindness and compassion. They learned it, you learned it, from our Bible. We were blessed to be able to give that to the world, and, and you've used that to fashion your own lives, your family lives, and your communities. And that's, and, and that's where these hospitals come from. It comes from these Jewish values. So, and I could give numerous examples of, of how we have so much, so much in common. And I'll even go so far as to say something that's, um, that uh, we're speaking publicly, and I'd be a little bit on thin ice if I said this publicly in my congregation, but I'm no longer a congregational rabbi, so I can say it. But, but I would venture to say that I, as a religious Jew, uh, an observant Jew, and you as a religious, serious Christian, I have much more in common with you in terms of our values and our beliefs than I do with a fellow Jew or a non-Jew who doesn't believe in God and doesn't ascribe to traditional biblical values. In other words, if I I were to take a hundred issues, social and theological issues, um, belief in God, belief in reward and punishment, belief in the afterlife, belief in the Messiah, belief in the, the sanctity of the life of an unborn child, belief in the traditional views of marriage, belief in 
uh, the sanctity of life at the end of life. You know, just go down a list. I would venture to say that you and I would probably agree on a 90 out of 100 of those items on the list, maybe 95. Mm-hmm. Whereas with my fellow Jew, um, as much as he is my brother, but who might uh, describe himself as a progressive, uh, who might not even believe in God, uh, there would not be a lot of common ground theologically and in terms of values. Mm-hmm. So, so, so I would, I would say, and in terms of support for Israel and belief in supporting Israel. Uh, so, I would say, just to to summarize my long-winded answer to your question and my message to uh, the Christians. Um, we have so much in common. We have so much in common, and 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 let's let's focus on that common ground, or at least I'm suggesting to myself, I try to focus on that common ground, and, and together, uh, as Americans, uh, focus on those common values that we share, uh, those authentic, traditional, biblical values, and together, there's so much more that we can accomplish to be able to. Uh, change this country in the direction in some ways in which the country is going and to make this country into the type of country that reflects those values that we share in common. Thank you, Rabbi Zev. Really appreciate the conversation. Well, I really appreciate the opportunity to be able to, sh- to chat with you.